This podcast is a publication of the Engineering Management Institute, where we are committed to building professional development systems, including project management and people leadership programs that support the growth of engineers and their firms. Download our AE Industry Trends Report for insights on the great resignation, remote work productivity, and people-centric cultures. To get your copy, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. Welcome to this episode of the Civil Engineering Podcast, the first podcast dedicated to helping civil engineering professionals succeed in work and life. I'm your host, Anthony Fasano, and in this episode of the Civil Engineering Podcast, I'll be talking with James Chambers, Director of Global Industry Development at Nemincheck, about the historical approach to digitization in our industry, but also the recent tech investments and common misconceptions about implementing software and hardware into your firm, because at the end of the day, those civil engineering firms that embrace technology and leverage it will be the leaders in our industry. Now, before we go on here, here's a quick word from our sponsor for this episode, Burns & McDonald. A career at Burns & McDonald goes beyond delivering projects. It's about owning outcomes, finding your best fit, and making a difference. Right now, Burns & McDonald is hiring engineers, architects, construction professionals, technologists, scientists, and consultants to design, build, and deliver environmentally conscious and socially responsible projects. Explore opportunities across their family of companies by visiting burnsmcd.com slash careers. That's burnsmcd.com slash careers. Burns & McDonald is an equal opportunity employer. Let's jump into today's episode. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. All right. So now I am excited to welcome our guest on to the show today, James Chambers. James is with Nemincheck, and Nemincheck itself is doing a lot of exciting things in the industry. And James, let's start off there. Tell us a little bit about Nemincheck, the company, and then we'll get into your background as well. Nemincheck is uh, the sleeping giant. Depending on where you are in the world, if you're in Germany, you know it. Uh, if you're not, you probably don't know it as well. But it's a a large, uh, used to be a sort of holding portfolio company, all very specifically focused on AEC, so architectural engineering, construction ownership tools and software solutions. But the last couple of years, really big focus on becoming a, a sort of a one company. So Nemecheck itself, you're probably familiar, or people might be familiar with a lot of the brands that are within Nemecheck uh, independently, but not necessarily the name Nemecheck. So it's broken into three different divisions. You've got a planning and design division that includes brands like Oldplan, Graphisoft, Vectorworks, Celebri. And then you've got a building construct division, which is where Bluebeam comes from. That's where I came into Nemecheck, was from Bluebeam along with another company called Navaris. And then you've got an owner-operate or owner-manage division that has Krem Solutions and Spacewell in there. And then uh, what's kind of new for this last year, which is exciting, is we've got an image engineering with uh, Frillo and SIA, structural engineering softwares. And then sort of on top of everything, you've got the Nemechek Digital Twin Business Unit, which has got uh, groups like or brands like Dorofus in there. But that's kind of the ecosystem and the intention really is that we are trying to help shape the world really from design through to owner operate and turnover. So kind of all assets of the building life cycle. Tell our audience what your role is there. 
So I am currently the Director of Global Industry Development for the Building Construct Division. So again, that's Bluebeam and Navaris. One of the, the topics we want to talk a lot about today is digitalization in our industry. Talk a little bit about the construction industry historically, how it's approached digitalization and how you see it changing now. I've been in this world for a while. I've, uh, I'm originally a mechanical engineer from the UK, moved to the US in 96, and then uh, worked in the US uh, from an engineering, mechanical and civil engineering capacity. So kind of lived and gone through the digital boom and, and everything else to see the experience of the industry. And I don't think anybody could argue that in the past, this industry was a, a little bit of a laggard or a little bit um, approached digitalization with a bit of trepidation. And I think there was a lot of reasons behind that. The history is absolutely one of the reasons behind this. This industry is streaked in tradition, the way it was doing things. The governing factors behind how this industry works are kind of set in stone a little bit in terms of even down to the contracts that we use were written, you know, decades ago. So I think technological adoption has been tough. I think you've always got those pockets of innovation, those companies have pushed the envelope, which is really great. If there ever was such a thing as a silver lining to the pandemic that we went through, I think it could be that this was one of those industries that really got forced into change and really got forced to adopt a new way of thinking, a new way of working. And really the best way of doing that was by adopting a digital process. So having that element of connectivity, digital connection between the folks out in different parts of the world, different parts of the country, people on job sites versus back in home offices, you had to adopt to some way of digitally thinking to be able to work. I think that was, again, kind of a, a great side benefit of really a, you know an awful situation. And what's been great to see is that the industry's kind of clung to that. They've seen that it works and they've kept doing a lot of those things. And uh, you've got certain areas as well around the world that have pioneered pushing things. So it's kind of very rare to see the public and the private sector meeting together. But, you know, you go to the UK and you see things like the bill standards and how, you know, the UK BIM standards were formed over 10 years ago now to sort of push anything governmentally subsidized has to be delivered in a digital way. And that's now been adopted around the world by everybody. National BIM standards, uh, NIBS is working on it themselves here in the US and, and it's all around the world now. People have BIM standards. So it's great to see the industry has almost pendulum. They've, they've all springboarded into having to use digital tools and then really embracing it and keeping those benefits going, which is fantastic. The civil engineering industry is one of those industries that for years and years, everybody would tell you, nobody can work from home. Everybody had to be at their desk. Everybody was looking at plans. Everybody was doing this. And then like, it seems like COVID happened and overnight, every civil engineering company was, everyone was working remote. And to your point, you know, it was kind of silver lining from a, a terrible situation, but it proved to people, especially those that are kind of more experienced professionals that for the longest time kept saying no, 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 no to people that wanted to try it. Now everyone was doing it. And like you said, it's working. So now people have stuck with it or at least stuck with it in large parts or have the flexibility for people to do either or, which I think has been a positive thing and has really opened the door for some of these technologies to be used more effectively now where they were always available, but maybe people weren't using them as much as they could have, right? And recognizing the power in them. Because the one thing that I think about digitization that is important is we're in an industry where there's more work than civil engineers. And when there's a lot more work 
than the people that can do it, the only, one of the answers is the technology that can help you, right? To make up that gap or to at least help to close that gap. So that's really one of the the reasons or one of the main reasons that you know we want to talk to James today about that. Let's talk a little bit more about our industry, James. I mean, there's definitely been an increase in tech investments in the AEC industries that we've seen in recent years. What are some of the factors that you believe have motivated these investments? What is what we just talked about? One is that there was actually proof and validity. Just to what you just said, the fact that a lot of people would say it wouldn't happen, it couldn't happen. And it did happen. We were forced into the world's biggest pilot project, if you want to think of it that way, right? To try and use technology to bridge a gap where we had a problem. And it worked. And I think you're seeing those companies that are, when post-pandemic went through a massive reevaluation process, they looked at internal workflows, they looked at internal systems, they saw what they could do digitally or where they could make improvements and where they couldn't. They didn't use it. They didn't adopt it. But it was good to see that the vast majority did. I think there's also been a big push on, compelled by that push through COVID, of the importance of data. And I think data and information sharing has been the most prolific part of that, to see how much data is needed. We talk about civil projects. Obviously, they're all a giant and varying scopes. It could be a small bridge job. It could be a massive corridor study. And typically, that scope and complexity of that project, all well, the moving parts, the supply chains, typically would perceive it as being an, a really, really complex project and proposition. And I think that's, again, where you need things like technology to manage all of those moving parts. And I think that's where you've seen, again, proof cases and validity where technology has worked side by side with the industry to help advance it by managing things, managing mundane or repetitive tasks or performance or uh, you know evaluation of what's going on. I think there's been an insert in new products as well. I think the, the software and hardware providers have produced amazing new tools over the last half a decade. I, I've seen more advancement in new products or product functionality in the last five years than I have in the last 20 years of being in the industry. And I, I think there's no secret as to why that's happened. You know, again, the world is kind of grasping onto this new way of thinking. There's new drivers. You've got drivers like sustainability. People are thinking differently. The mindset of the folks that we have both working in the industry and living in the environment we create have a different way of thinking about things now as well. So working smarter, not working harder, working with better materials that are better for the environment, better production methods. When we think of civil, there's more and more people that are utilizing what is made, what is built, the highways, the infrastructure and everything else. So, you know, as an industry, we've got this massive pressure on us to make sure that we build these things that the public is going to use, the world is going to integrate with and interrupt with. So I think there's a lot of a lot of sort of factors there. The last factor you absolutely pointed out as well as being not only the labor shortages and the labor issue, but also the supply chain issue that we went through during pandemic and post-pandemic with difficult to get materials, difficult to, you know, super high prices of inflation. So the industry's had to think differently to combat some of those issues and those shortcomings of labor, materials, and, and, and supply chains, and the demand of the industry. Projects are getting more complex, and they're getting more frequent. There's a lot more things. Uh, you know, 
Look at all the capital investment that is going on between now and 2030 in terms of roads and bridges and infrastructure and everything. It's huge. There's a massive sort of push on that. And, and again, a lot of that was post-pandemic as well. Before, you said, everybody had to walk or drive or go to an office, and they worked in an office. Now people don't. Now people are working remotely. Now they need good transit to move around and go to th different things and interact with the environment we all live in, whereas before, didn't really have that need. I think it's a number of factors, but those are kind of the top ones that spring to mind to me. There are a lot of civil engineers, civil engineering leaders probably listening to this, and I'm sure they might be saying, okay, yeah, we're sold on the technology at this point. But the one thing that's often scary is adopting a new technology and implementing it into a firm of any size. I mean, obviously, the larger the firm, it could be even more complex, but what would you say are kind of some of those common misconceptions or fears about adopting digital tools among the industry veterans? And what can you do to kind of alleviate some of those current concerns? What can you tell them? Point of board is what you just said. Usually scope, scope and scale. Either the project, it has to be used on a project of a certain size, or it can only be used at a firm of a certain size because they have the time and the money and the resources to put it adopting that technology, that solution. That's wrong. Cost. There's a misconception that it is absolutely an enormously expensive proposition to bring in new technology or new solutions. And again, that's not the case anymore. It absolutely used to be. You thought about buying a drone five, 10 years ago, an extremely expensive proposition. Reality capture now is cheap as chips. Sorry, British expression there, but cheap as chips. You know, you can go buy a BLK 360 for, for five grand. You can go buy a drone that will do scan to BIM for two and a half grand, a 360 walkable camera for 500 bucks. Like you capture this rich data and this information now extremely cheaply. That last conception I think is targeting, yeah, as you said, the maybe the older demographic of the market, which I'll counter argue that and say, that demographic has again become more tech savvy than we actually think it is. You look at the amount of people that now bank online, shop online, use their iPads and their smartphones to do all of their daily life cycle activities, they're all doing it. Everybody streams videos and everybody's using the cloud, like they're all doing it. That's a misconception in itself that is the aging industry that doesn't want to adopt technology. I think it's that it's hard to learn. They think it's going to be hard to learn and adopt. And that again is a bit of a misconception. Sure, anything new is change. And I think change in change management is probably one of the biggest biggest hurdles that we have is doing things differently. But I, I would say if people look into themselves and say, what have you done differently this last two years that you didn't do before? Is it that you've switched to streaming? I no longer have cable. I stream everything or I do all my banking online remotely. I do all these things. Look at how you've adapted to that technology change to using a scary word like the cloud, but you use that every day now, et cetera. So I think those are the, the quick misconceptions that I would think of that that are actually not true. They're not true whatsoever. The pricing is is really important too. We found that at EMI, we've got some new software that we purchased and it was a lot cheaper and inexpensive than I thought it was going to be, quite frankly. And also a lot of these digital companies, they've worked with us on like payment plans, like being you know very accommodating to make sure that it can work. So I wouldn't not explore something to James's point because just because you think it's going to be out of your realm in terms of finance, because likely you'll find something to meet your goals that's affordable for you and figure out a way to pay for it. Because quite frankly, a lot of these technologies too are going to pay for themselves. That's a 
absolutely excellent point that I think it's in the software provider's best interest to show you an ROI or a value as quickly as possible. And they've got terrific programs now. Obviously, I represent a number of different software solutions, but I look across the whole vertical of solutions out there. Things that will help adoption, that will help onboarding, that will help training, those are now not just expectations, those are given. Work with your software providers to get that level of training because you'll find that you can get an ROI much quicker than you used to. Totally. And that's something you got to really think about when you're doing your benefit cost analysis on you know looking at some of these different programs. James, one of the things that's always been a challenge in this industry is the large amount of documentation and information on our projects. How does going digital kind of provide some advantages when it comes to documentation, whether it's a large, small business, whatever the case may be? Yeah, absolutely. Again, we've mentioned the complexity or scope of civil projects is vast, it's epic. The biggest thing is commonality, it's standards. If you use, if you now know what the preferred digital platform or format is, it's going to be PDF, it's going to be IFC, it's going to be whatever it is, then you now have that commonality. You have interoperability. And you have access to that data from the entirety of the life cycle. Because again, everybody thinks they just own a little piece of the pie, and they do. But when you think of a project in its scope, in its entirety, what's done at pre-construction, breaking ground, and, and everything else through construction to own or operate is that same level of access to that data. So now having that data all in the same format, having everybody on the same page is going to make the entirety of that project much easier to use. And I think also from, you talked about the the size and scope of different people, whether it's large formats down to, you know, the SMBs, absolutely that commonality is leveling the playing field. Because if I've got the same delivery as you, and I'm not a, you know, an HNTV or whoever it might be, I know I can deliver the same project, the same product. I can bring you the same value. And now it doesn't matter how big we are because we're all contributing to the end goal, which is doing our thing that contributes to the big project. Yeah. And that's an important point there, that last point. I mean, even here at EMI, we do a lot of leadership and project management development programs for firms of all different sizes from you know 100 people to 2,000 people. And because of some of the technology that we're able to use on the back end, we can really deliver that same level of high quality, regardless of the number of people that might be going through the programs. And that's not something we would be able to do without having the right technology in the back end. So I do think it levels the playing field quite a bit for firms of all different sizes. And you know, again, it's going to be going through a process to figure out what works for you, what works for your organization, which is something that is one of the things that I think we kind of want to talk about next here, which is when companies want to make a transition, right? They are looking at a new software, a new program, they want to go digital. What would you say are some of the key strategies or things that they should consider when they're making this transition? Yeah, it's a great question. And one we hear all too often and one that people unfortunately don't do. And that would be really understanding the why. Like, what are you looking to do? What are you looking to achieve? And again, I would say it also depends on where you are in that digital adoption process. Are you new to it? Are you existing? Do you have some technologies? But the big question typically is why? What is your desired outcome? What are you looking to achieve? Or what is the the problem you are trying to solve? Once that's very clear within the organization, you can build a strategy behind that. The next biggest strategy or next biggest impact or influence is typically gaining the buy-in. 
If this is a top-down prescribed, you have to use this solution, no ifs, ands, or buts, then it seems like that very way. It seems like you're now pushing something to a non-receptive workforce, right? Which is not not going to work. So I think gaining the buy-in by properly illustrating why, why this is going to make your life easier, why this is going to bring better value and quality to the product or the, the project or your job. So show the progress. You know, oftentimes people go out and they spend a ton of money and they buy softwares or they buy hardware and they implement it and then they never do any checks and balances on it. So it's like, has it worked? Has it met those needs? And by showing progress, you're showing that you're actually, you're getting something out of your investment, which is going to help everybody. It's going to help the guy, the people up in finance. It's going to help the people down the boots on the ground. And I would say also encourage and reward integration, the folks to get involved. Like if you encourage and motivate people to want to use the softwares or the new changes in process, they're going to be more inclined to do so. And then the last thing would be reevaluate. Like you bought something for a specific need, reevaluate it six, 12 months later. Is it still meeting those needs or have those needs change? And which is all well and good. And it might've happened, but if you don't reassess, you're not going to start to build standards around something that is now antiquated and that that software in the way you bought it or the way you implemented it might not be bringing you the best value. There's a great analogy there for those of you that are civil engineers, project managers, right? When you're working on a project, you create a project plan from the beginning with expectations and you have to monitor, track your project throughout the project. And if you don't, it's going to get off track, right? So when you implement a new software, a new technology, you have to monitor how that implementation, how that product is helping you achieve the goal you wanted to achieve. And if you're not, then that's your fault if you go off track and two years later, you say, we spent all this money on the technology and we're not where we want to be. So that's something to keep in mind. The other thing that I will say that I think just going back to what James said is important. A couple of years ago, one of my guests recommended a book to me. It was called, Where Do You Want to Be Five Years From Today? And it was a simple, short book, but it asks a lot of interesting questions. And I think when you go back to kind of what James said is, where do you want your organization to be five years from today? Because what you're doing today, the tools you're getting, the software you're implementing is definitely going to dictate whether or not you end up there. So going back to what James said, you know, what's the why here? Like, What are you trying to accomplish in your organization? Once you see that, then you could say to yourself, what people do we need? What software do we need, right? And then you could put the whole plan together of how you're going to get there. Because if you're not thinking ahead like that, you might just see a software that looks good. You've heard a lot of good stuff about it. You buy it, you want to implement it, but it's not really what you need. You maybe needed this other software that's going to do more. So does that that kind of make sense, James, of what you were saying? Totally makes sense. It resonates. Again, I, I wore the hat of being the IT manager for a large civil firm in the East Coast of the US for a while. And that was the, the philosophy, if I put my IT hat on, was when we looked at a software, we looked at it from two reasons. What is it going to do and how is it going to grow and adapt with my business needs? Because buying it for the X and then your company's heading in a Y direction, you've now just wasted a lot of money. The other thing is pick those vendors specifically. Don't just pick the software. The software might be the best software in the world, but if the vendor behind the software, the support system behind that software... If they're going to sell you and then walk away and never talk to you until you need to renew, that's not a good relationship. Now you can challenge that. You can be engage that software supplier to actually have a 12-month relationship or a three-year relationship, whatever that might be, to make sure they're with you along the journey. And I think the last point there that I think you mentioned was the investment of implementation was 
there should be two costs. One is the cost of the software. The other one is what's the cost to the my organization to make sure that we implement get this software on and running. If you budget all your money just to buy the software and put no resources or no money behind implementation, training, and onboarding, well, good luck. That's a tough proposition. And again, that doesn't need to be, going back to previous conversations, as costly as you think it could be. That might be things that are offered as a service for free or reduced cost. Take advantage of those things because you don't go out and just buy a brand new fridge without doing your homework or without then you know plugging in and then cleaning it regularly or everything else. You've got to maintain that that software. Think of it as an asset. That's what it is. When people are doing their analysis, they're looking at the cost of the software, but if they're not factoring in the other costs, whether it's time or hard dollars of what it's going to take to implement it, then that's problematic. And again, it, it really lines up with what we do at EMI because if we come in and do a project management training program for someone for three to six months, what they do when we leave matters. Their PMs and their managers need to implement and reinforce what we taught because if they don't, it's all kind of going out the window and we kind of tell them that as part of it. So it's the same idea here. You have to think about Whatever new thing you're investing in, how you're going to integrate it successfully into your organization for the long term. And that's a big factor because without it, you might just throw away everything that you've done in the past, unfortunately. James, what tools do you recommend for companies looking to improve their digital strategy? It goes back to like, where are you doing a need assessment? What's your problem? Where's the biggest impact? A lot of times I'd say a quick answer would be people look in the wrong places sometimes. They might think it's got to be a productivity tool when really it's back of house. It's their finance systems aren't good. Their organization or their document management or their HR solutions are kind of the big blockers, the big uh, catalysts for efficiency. So the ones that we've seen have the biggest effect recently have been either things to do with document management or things to do with collaboration and communication. We'll kind of leave it there. Those seem to be the biggest because they have impact straight away and they tend to also be very cost effective. Other ones I think that are very prevalent in our industry, things like cost management, estimating, takeoff, things like that. Like there are, again, it goes back to what we said, the tools are actually probably a lot more affordable than they think they are. And there are some great cost management solutions out there. We talked about reality capture. Those are amazing tools that 10 years ago would have cost you an absolute fortune. Now they're under five grand to go get all that great data. You have to think about, you know, when you're getting into what do you need right now? It goes back to you again. What do you need? Because you can find software for anything out there today, right? And again, some of them are going to be like these shiny targets that you're like, hey, this looks really cool. Let's get it. Let's implement it. I'm using a lot of analogies, but when we do our PM training, a lot of times we interview the PMs. One of the things they tell us all the time is I don't have the data that I need to track my projects, right? But then when we look at the software they're using, all the data plus more is there, right? So again, like when you're implementing a software, James said this before, your people need to know how to use it because it could be the most advanced software in the world, but if it's sitting there on someone's computer and they can't get the data out of it, then it doesn't help you. So I think kind of what we're we're learning here as we kind of go through this conversation with James is, number one, you have to really identify what your needs are and how technology can help you, what your goals are and what your challenges are. And technology can help you with both of those. But then on the back end of that, once you find that right technology, you've got to make sure that you've got a good implementation plan to make sure that you're then maximizing what you want to get out of it. And even if it is a communication tool, like James suggested, or a documentation organization tool, again, those could be great and they could have the biggest impacts as long as you've got a good process in place to make sure that you're implementing them appropriately. 
I totally agree with that. And I, I think having an open mind about it as well, because as you just said, the data sort of struck home for a second there where you're probably using tools that are capturing way more data than you need. The fact that it sits on the computer or a hard drive or the network because you just don't know what to do with it. Maybe if you're talking as an organization, there could be other people, you know, I'm thinking LIDAR, I'm thinking scanning where it's like, oh my gosh, that data could be used multiple times throughout the project because people didn't know you captured it or they didn't know it was there can be overwhelming. That's why you need to think through everything as part of your planning process before you just kind of jump in here, which is important. So James, do you have any examples of a company or an organization that has successfully kind of made the transition? And I'm sure there were challenges involved. Anything you can share? I'll go purposely away from civil. I will mention them, but they're an oil, gas, and energies company. And um, this is a few years ago, but the, they wanted to really evaluate an analog process. They had a very, and the need, the impetus behind it was quite critical. As you can imagine in that industry, under a huge amount of scrutiny for, you know, standards and safety and everything else. And they had a procedure to shut down a floating asset, an FSBO or an oil rig or whatever it might be. And they wanted to modernize it, they said, which I love, not, not digitalize, modernize. I evaluated what they're currently doing. It was an extremely manual analog process, which to me was terrifying that that's how they did things. That's how they shut down an oil rig was using a manual process, like highlighting with Sharpies how like the flow of fluids and gas and everything else. The challenges were obviously a huge scope, massive complex asset, like a rig or a, or whatever, a refinery. Also the volatile nature of where you were working, typically offshore and things like that. So we tried to digitalize their analog process because that would gain familiarity and trust. It would gain adoption really quickly if people were just doing the same thing, but in a much more efficient way. And the biggest thing that it brought, which they didn't even know about or care about first, was the complete accountability for what you're doing. So now you would walk around and instead of a you know paper PNID or a digital PNID, you were dropping down asset indicators that would say, this is valve number blah, This is the state of the valve is it's open or it's closed or it's partial or whatever it might be, and it would be color-coded. And all of that data without them knowing was all time, date, stamped, captured, who did it, what that valve state was. And then they pulled that off and exported it through something like XML or CSV, and they were just implementing SharePoint at the same time. So we were like, great, there's your document repository. Put it all in there. So now they had complete accountability, and this was for one specific workflow after we were going through the training and doing this, it was very interesting that that one that they thought was a super specific workflow, there was actually five procedures that used the exact same analogy, right? It was look at, visually inspect, indicate, annotate, capture, and record. Well, now they could do line walks and boundary tests and isolation walks and all these other things that were very similar workflows that were extremely manual, extremely digital, but extremely critical to capture that information. And it's been great to see how that's just snowballed. You know, you had to talk about a, uh, a reluctant audience, I'll call it that way, a reluctant audience to technology adoption. Once they got the grasp of what it could do, they felt safer about things. They knew that things were being captured digitally. It was doing their homework for them as well, which is what they loved. They export the data, put it straight into a spreadsheet, straight into SharePoint. They didn't have to write reports anymore. They loved life. So it was great to see that visceral connection of people that got it and then embraced it and then started to look at other ways they could adapt the same thing or, or you know, adapt that workflow, that procedure to make other lives easier. That's great. And I hope that that example for those of you listening can maybe 
have you step back and look at your organization and look for the processes or areas where you could potentially improve by putting some kind of digitization into it, a tech, not more technology. Because really, if you think about that example, I mean, just at face value, I would imagine it's so much safer. In that kind of an industry where so many things can go wrong in a situation like that, like James said earlier, why have anything to chance with an analog you know, or like a very manual process where something could go wrong, something might not get checked off, and so on and so forth. And I'm sure that every civil engineering or every infrastructure firm has processes that can be improved, that can be faster, better, but really at a higher quality, right? When it comes to safety and other things also that can just make the ROI of these things so much more valuable. Like civil as well, the nice thing was when you think of the maintenance, the owner operation and maintenance stage, this was supposed to be a singular use of a technology new process. It's bled into backends like owner operation and management of this thing. Because like CIFL, unfortunately, these assets are built and then they're used 25 years beyond that lifespan, right? So having that access to data and information where they can now do predictive maintenance, they can do all of these other sort of ancillary and tertiary things off the back of data they were collecting on a line walk or an observation walk. It's amazing at that point. James, what's next? As we look at more of the integration of AI and ML tools, how do you see the construction software industry kind of adapting and evolving from your seat? What have you been seeing? Yeah, it's certainly exploding. It's certainly, uh, again, you know, two to five years ago, it's now to the next 10 years is going to be really exciting. You keep measuring it, I keep measuring it, it's data. I think having access to that data, AI is brilliant. I recently sat in on something between AI, generative AI versus computative, and it's amazing to see those sort of boundaries and the lines where we can use our civil engineering standards to have something else look at it from completely outside the box and say, redesign that bridge. And it'll come up with 15 different computations of what that bridge could look like and they're doing this now, actually. There are large companies that are using AI to design bridges. And that's not the problem. The problem is, would you, Anthony, drive over that bridge so that it could be designed? So that's a whole other story that we can get into. But the point is, on the forefront, the technology is there to make life much quicker, much more efficient, much safer, but still play by the rules that we have, those, you know, the structural rules and all of the boundaries that we have within the civil and the infrastructure world. I think you're also going to see Software companies are going to have to provide things like open APIs, so interoperability and data flows, seamless. It shouldn't be, you need to use this tool to do this. It should be, I can use whatever tool I'm comfortable with, whatever I have already in my tech stack, because I know what you need is X data. You need this format. You need whatever it might be. And I can do that and give that to you. And then the next person down the food chain can take that same data and do what they need to do with it. That's where you're going to see software companies all heading is that notion of a data agnostic world, open standards and things like that, where it doesn't matter what tool you use. You just, the end goal is the end goal. The deliverable product or the deliverable data is what I need. And that's what you'll sort of see. We're seeing that computational, we're seeing chat GDP, we're seeing all these things that are helping with bill of materials and scheduling and, and contracting and project planning and, and the things like that, which is kind of amazing to see those. I think we're also seeing massive, it's not just software, it's hardware as well. We're seeing hardware companies get into software, which is really interesting. You're seeing, you know, Makita and, and Hilti, like Hilti is a great example of a very traditionally hardware-based company, fasteners and hardware and tools that now have 2XP or 4, 4DS, 
ELP. They have Feel built like into their hardware. Well, these companies, so you're seeing hardware companies buying software companies, which is very interesting because they're there. They're, they're, they're supplying the tools or they're supplying the hardware to do these projects, and they're hearing it firsthand where things aren't working. So they're like, well, let's solve the problem. So I think it all revolves around data, and I think it all revolves around sort of open, creating those open standards and making sure that everybody has access to what they need, the right information at the right time to get the job done. For those of you out there that might be a little bit nervous about some of the technology taking over more of the design work, the one thing that I would say to that is we have a massive amount of infrastructure that's failing in the United States, and we don't have enough engineers to fix it in time for it to be safe for people. So I'm not saying that civil engineers are getting replaced by technology, but if we can leverage technology to help us address those issues faster so things are safer for people... I think it's our responsibility to do that if the software and technology is available. So I think there's going to be an important blend for us to think about, but that's the way I think of it. I, the way I think of it is if we don't act fast enough, people are going to be in danger and the technology can help us address that essentially. And it's not people's fear of displacing jobs. Like technology is not going to displace jobs. Like I could now run a drone program to fly bridge inspections. And to your point, those are bridges that are failing around the country, right? So if I can go fly those and get all that information, I can send that back to really educated, tenured people in this industry that can review and inspect that and make decisions quicker on prioritization or scheduling and, and things like that. So technology needs to advance and it can advance with us as people within the industry to get the most out of it. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back with James. We're going to wrap up by putting him on the career hot seat. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. Before we go on here, I'd like to recognize our sponsor for this episode, PPI, a leader in engineering exam prep for the FE and PE exams. PPI provides expert prep courses and study resources designed to help you pass the FE and PE exams the first time. PPI's live online courses include hours of lectures, problem-solving demonstrations, exam strategy sessions, office hours, and a passing guarantee. Check out PPI today at ppi2pass.com to see all the options available for FE and PE exam prep. All right, so we are back with James Chambers, Director of Global Industry Development at Nemincheck. We've talked a lot about digitization in the industry thinking about the different softwares, hardware that you want to implement into your companies and how they can help you and doing it the right way. But now, James, we're going to get into your career a little bit and we're going to put you on our career hot seat. You ready? Okay, let's go for it. All right. So do you have any specific rituals that you practice every day? Maybe it's a morning routine or a lunchtime routine or just something that you do consistently on a daily basis that has contributed to your success. I work remotely post-can. I was one of those rare people that always work remotely. Bluebeam was based in the West Coast. I lived on the East Coast. I went from being in an office Monday through Friday that was about a 100-mile round-trip commute to working from home. That prospect excited me and terrified me. And I asked a few friends that were you know, in sales that work from home and work remotely. And the best piece of advice I got was get dressed like into business attire, a different pair of shoes every day. And you need to create that disconnect. So it was great to be done at, you know, what, five, six o'clock, whenever it was, and get changed, get changed into sweatpants, throw on some sneakers, and and have that mental and physical disconnect. Because what I lost in that commute to work was that time to disconnect between work life and home life. And that 
I found gave me a good step to balance to be like, I'm dressed differently. I feel more comfortable. I'm done work. I'm a big fan of Cal Newport, the author. He's written a lot of books, one of them being Deep Work. And he talks about the idea of like, you know, we're constantly, there's like, isn't that disconnection, so to speak anymore. And he recommended something similar, having like a shutdown routine at the end of your day. Like even if you're in the next room at home, like still having that shutdown, I'm done with work. I'm closing my laptop. I'm checking my email for my last time walking out type of thing. So I love the idea of kind of creating that, that separation. I think that could be very powerful. Is there maybe a book or an author or a philosophy or something in your career when it comes to personal or professional development that you've encountered that has stuck with you, that you've kind of leaned on throughout your career? Career and life. And this was a completely unexpected book for me. I, I ride motorcycles. So I went off and and I bought Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance because I thought it was going to be this like cool way of how to maintain my bike. How wrong I was. But Persick is the author. I'm sure people have read this book, but it was about motorcycles. It was about a 17A journey uh, from, I think it was Minnesota out to the north coast of California that he did with his son. And it ended up being a journey of a philosophical discovery of what is quality. And it was that notion of your classical mindset versus your romantic mindset or your uh, rational mindset versus uh, you know an emotional mindset. And it, it was really cool to kind of see that you need both sides of that to come to a conclusion. And when we think of it from you know, being an engineer, everything's very black and white. And then you think of like, that's why engineers and architects have very strange conversations. You talk to an architect, it's like, they've got guidance, but it's all about the aesthetics and it's about the beauty. And it's like, no, the building wouldn't work if it didn't have these. So I like to think of it as an, an architect and an engineer coming together. But it was nice to get that perspective of you need both sides of the conversation to come to the conclusion. And also it just tested that question of what is quality to rethink reassess what quality was, whether that's in a product, in life, in whatever it was. So again, didn't buy it thinking it was going to be that kind of a book, uh, thinking it was going to be more about actually motorcycle maintenance, but it ended up being quite an impactful book for me, and I, I would highly recommend it. It is an awesome book, and if you don't have time to read even the Audible version, I got it on audio myself, and it was a really good listen You know, going through the journey, so awesome, awesome book. Thinking back to some of your managers in the past, James, and thinking of some of your favorite managers, and you don't have to name names, but what made them your favorite? We're trying to understand what makes for a great manager or leader from the people who kind of report to them or work for them. There's a couple that stand out, and they stand out for the same reason, actually. They were the ones that, again, working remotely, somehow still made you feel very connected and very much part of a team. Even working remotely, like you were part of a team meaning your contribution mattered. That is huge. And it comes down to also like the management style of like very hands-off, but allowing you the freedom, the flexibility to really either get it right or fail, but fail quick. And jumping in at the times with really good constructive direction. And I think what made it sort of the icing on the cake for me for both of these examples were I believed in them. They had the validity in me because they walked the shoes. They made you really feel like they'd walked in your shoes. They'd done what you've done. You, you knew they were kind of experiencing these things. Those are sort of qualities that I think were things that when I then became a manager of people, I absolutely tried to instill the, that mindset into how I approached the team that I developed and I grow and then how I managed and mentored people. And it, it still sticks with me today. That's even... 
more important today with all the people that do work more remotely, right? Being able to engage your team members, make them feel valued and keep people motivated to do that in a world where we are remote sometimes or in person sometimes. It's, it's a mix. So that that is very important. The last question that I have for you is we call it our engineering career elevator advice question. So if you got into an elevator with an up and coming engineer, you know, younger in their career, you had about 30 to 40 seconds with him or her. From all of your experience to date, what career advice would you give them in that short ride together? First, I congratulate them for being in the industry because uh, I probably don't think enough people do that. You know, it's a big choice, right? You have lots of different options. And, and I'd be like, oh my gosh, what an outstanding industry. And this is a problem that our industry highlighted in our industry is that we don't do enough to promote new people to come into the industry. We are an astonishing industry. We physically shape the world we live in and we influence the world we live in. And we do a really crap job of promoting that. So I think that would be what I would do. I would say, you know, just congratulations. Think of why you chose to be in that industry. Absolutely live it and dream it. Push the boundaries. Try new things. You're coming into an industry that does have walls. It has swim lanes. It's okay to bump into those swim lanes. And it's okay to challenge those swim lanes. If you've done your homework, like challenge that. And then, yeah, I'd say be proud and promote it. Promote why you chose to come into the industry. You can make a difference. People ask me, what do civil engineers do? And I just say, look outside. Try to find something that they don't have a hand in in some way, shape, or form in the built environment, right? And so it's good stuff. So James, I want to thank you for spending some time with us on the Civil Engineering Podcast. You gave us some great tips on the, what to think about when you're implementing new tools in your company and some great career tips. We really appreciate the time. Absolutely. My pleasure. And thank you for doing that. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with James. I truly believe that the civil engineers and their firms that embrace technology will lead us into the future. Please remember you can find the show notes for this episode at civilengineeringpodcast.com. There you will find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during the episode. Until next time, I wish you the best in all of your civil engineering career endeavors. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to download the latest version of our AE Industry Trends Report to get answers to the questions that you want to ask your staff, but you may be afraid to do so. How long will the great resignation last? How long should you allow employees to work remotely? And how are successful firms using data to grow sustainably for the long term? You can learn the answers to these questions and more by downloading the report at engineeringmanagementinstitute.com dot org.